Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Rudra Chaudhary, and this week I'm joined by Mr. Vijay Gokhale to take stock of the recent visit to India by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Mr. Gokhale is the former Foreign Secretary of India and a non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie India. He retired from the Indian Foreign Service in January 2020 after a diplomatic career that spanned 39 years. He is a true Sinologist. He served as India's ambassador to China. He's also the author of two exceptional books on Tiananmen Square and a more recent publication titled The Long Game, a book on how Chinese leaders negotiate. Mr. Gokhale, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you, uh, Rudy, for having me on the show. So if I could start with the broader question, which is on everybody's mind, which is what is the significance of Wang Yi's visit to India, the first since the summer of 2020? I think this is an important visit because it is the first political level contact that we have had since late 2019. And uh, as you know, resumption of political exchanges between two important countries and particularly if they are neighbors does have a special significance. Now, from India's perspective, I think this was an opportunity to do some serious talking with the Chinese side. If you look at the press conference that the external affairs minister held after his talks, he used certain interesting phrases. For instance, he said there was a broad and substantive agenda. Uh, I think that was intended to convey the point that the talks were uh, wide-ranging and fairly detailed and covered all subjects of concern to us. He also used the phrase open and candid discussion. Now, this is usually code language in diplomaties for plain speaking. So I think the significance from our perspective was first that a political exchange has taken place. And secondly, that we were able to convey at first hand to the Chinese side that the issues of our concern of, or of our interest have not yet been fully addressed. I can only guess uh, what the significance would be for the Chinese from the Chinese perspective, but I dare say that there may be a realization in Beijing that the relationship has been damaged and it needs some tending to. Now, whether this tending to is in any substantive sense or whether it is merely in, uh, in, in, the, in a tactical sense is something we will uh, only learn as we go ahead. So is it too soon to come to the conclusion that there is some thinking in New Delhi, notwithstanding the acute troubles on the border, about some kind of a course correction with uh, China? It's too early to make that assessment. I think the government uh, of India or the two officials, the senior officials who met uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, that is both the external affairs minister and the national security advisor, delivered very clear messages. Uh, if I could summarize Minister Jayashankar's message, it was first that the bilateral relationship has been disturbed as a result of Chinese actions. In other words, the onus of repairing that relationship or bringing it back on track lies with China. Secondly, he again spoke of the three mutuals. That is, both sides must have mutual respect, uh, mutual sensitivity to each other's concerns, 
and must give due regard to mutual interests. And the stress was on the word mutual. Now, this is important because there is a feeling in India, rightly or wrongly, that uh, this has been a one-way street where we have been sensitive to China's interests and areas of concern, but not the other way around. And the third message that uh, Minister Jayashankar delivered, and he delivered this quite clearly in his press conference, was that normalcy in the relationship will follow disengagement and de-escalation along the line of actual control. And if you look at uh, Mr. Doval's comments as well, or at least what was reported in the media, his essential point was that he would visit China for the larger strategic dialogue and for the special representatives meeting on the boundary question only after the immediate issues on the LSE were resolved. So I think that uh, the two officials were pretty consistent in the messaging. And uh, therefore, I think a reset in the relationship, if that's what you're asking, depends now uh, on the Chinese side. The ball is entirely in the Chinese court. <laughs> Having said that, um, you know, from the late 1980s all the way through till about, say, 2012, there was something of a common string or a common line that could be identified. And that seemed to be at number one, that there were border issues. Number two, around 2005, 2006, there seemed to be a realization that we need to do more with China, notwithstanding the issues on the border. And then, of course, that didn't quite work out for India. And in the last three or four years, and especially since Galwan in 2020, the Indian government has made very clear that stability on the border is directly dependent on the health of the broader relationship and vice versa. If we were to take um, what the foreign minister said and what the national security advisor said at face value, and the ball is in, Chinese, in China's court. And if, for instance, there was a degree of de-escalation along the line of actual control, what is the kind of mechanism that you see that now needs to be put in place to stabilize that relationship? Uh, Rudy, you know, the mechanisms are already in place. I mean, the agreements of 1993 and 1996 and the subsequent protocols that the two governments worked out in 2005 and again in 2012 um, have mandated a number of measures to avoid incidents uh, like that which happened in the Galwan Valley in June 2020. So uh, as I think the government of India has said quite clearly, it is a question of the Chinese coming back onto the same page with us on these agreements and of implementing them faithfully on the ground. Now, uh, from the uh, various uh, statements that the Indian side has put out, uh, I would hazard the guess that while some progress has been made, and that is what the minister said, it is clearly not adequate enough to convince the Indian side that going forward, peace and tranquility along the line of actual control will not be disturbed again. Until that comfort level is given, uh, it doesn't seem likely that the relationship will move forward towards, the, uh, towards normalcy. And uh, at least my understanding is that some more discussion is required uh, between the military commanders on the two sides in order to ensure that uh, the situation pre-April 2020 is more or less restored. Yeah, you know China better than most. The ball is clearly in China's court, but do you think they understand that? 
I think they do, uh, Rudy, because uh, the fact that Foreign Minister Wangi decided to include India in his visit in, uh, to South Asia, uh, and the fact that this was a Chinese outreach, to the best of my understanding, suggests that at least for optical or tactical reasons, uh, they want to convey that there is normalcy in the relationship, or at least uh, that hostility does not exist. So I'm going to switch to Ukraine. The last few weeks, of course, been a period of wartime frenzy, geopolitical frenzy. Wang Yi visits India. There's a news report today that uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov might be visiting India this week to talk about a variety of issues, supply chains, defense, military, buying of oil, perhaps. How does the Ukraine crisis impact and shape the Sino-Indian relationship? Uh, that's actually a very interesting question. And I think that's really the crux of the issue. Uh, see, from my perspective, I think uh, India has not in any sense uh, drawn any direct linkage between what is happening in the Ukraine uh, and uh, India-China relations. But at the same time, I think we need to take serious note of the fact that China has, uh, in the 7th March 2022 press conference that the foreign minister of China did, he equated the NATO's actions in uh, Eastern Europe and used it, of course, to justify the Russian invasion with the Indo-Pacific strategy, which he labeled as an Asian NATO. Now, this suggests to me that China not only does not respect India's agency in the region, that India has its own voice or role in the region, but it also suggests that they look upon us as an American camp follower. And it is my personal view that this is China's real strategic view. Tactically, however, or optically, if you want to put it that way, he made this visit because I think the Chinese are under some pressure, particularly after the 4th February joint statement between Presidents Putin and Xi Jinping. And they want to show that India and China don't have a dissimilar approach on Ukraine. I think, however, that our foreign minister made it very clear uh, when he said that both sides talked of their respective views, that there wasn't much common ground. And in fact, the foreign minister went so far as to say that the only congruence was that both agree on diplomacy and dialogue as a priority. Now, this is a view that is the view of the global majority. There's nothing exceptional about this. And therefore, if it was the Chinese foreign minister's intention to build a united front, I don't believe that he has succeeded. Uh, now, of course, as you correctly said, Foreign Minister Lavrov is to come to Delhi this week. Uh, we have also heard other voices out of Moscow, particularly Dmitry Medvedev, talking of the Russia-India-China uh, triangle. Uh, my own sense is that this is what we in India call kite flying. Uh, and I don't think there is enough breeze for the kite to take off. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I do want to point out here that the Russia-India-China format is one of the formats which India values, as it does other formats. And therefore, um, uh, I'm not ruling out the possibility that uh, down the road, 
uh, meetings between these three countries will continue. But what I am saying is that I don't think that Wangi was successful in trying to build a united front by coming to India. And my sense is that if this is the uh, objective of the Russian foreign minister, uh, that is to build the RIC, uh, I don't think that will succeed either. If, of course, it is purely to discuss bilateral relations, then obviously that's uh, something that the government of India also, I presume, attaches importance to. I'm going to come back to the Russia-China relationship in a, in a couple of minutes and how that affects us. But if I could come back to this question of various Chinese officials now trying to equate what's happening inside of Ukraine with the Indo-Pacific. So recently, you know, Chinese Vice Foreign Minister Leo Chen also made a pretty powerful statement. And if I just quote him here, he says, the Ukraine crisis provides a mirror for us to observe the situation in the Asia-Pacific. We cannot but ask, how can we prevent a crisis like this from happening in the Asia-Pacific? In a sense, it seems like China parroting Russia's playbook with regards to NATO expansionism in Europe and equating it with regards to expansionism in the Indo-Pacific, which sets very wide parameters of what China may deem to be acceptable and not acceptable. How does India deal with this and how does this play out in the medium to long term if this indeed does become China's primary strategic playbook? So, Rudy, uh, since at least 2005, uh, China has been talking about the United States building a containment framework in the Asia-Pacific, what they call the Asia-Pacific. Uh, and those uh, allegations have accelerated when Quad 1.0 was formed and subsequently when Quad 2.0 was formed. And they have used the phrase Asian NATO as far back as 2007 or 2008. Therefore, I see the Ukraine crisis simply as a peg, as a peg to hang their argument on. And to by equating the two, to suggest that just as NATO expansion in Western Europe was constraining Russia's space uh, and reaching an intolerable limit, uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy of the United States may do the same to China. Of course, uh, we conveniently or the Chinese conveniently don't wish to say that there isn't a NATO-like structure in uh, the Indo-Pacific and uh, that India is not part of any security alliance either, whether it is the Five Eyes Security Alliance, whether it is AUKUS, whether they are bilateral agreements that the United States has with Japan or Australia. India is free of these constraints. We are not restrained by any of these. Uh, and therefore, the question that India should pose to China is, uh, are you going to invade somebody? Because uh, if uh, the immediate context of the Ukrainian crisis is the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, and if the answer to that is no, then we don't see why China should be concerned about some random statements that some countries have made, where there is, at least as of now, no visible structure, no treaty, no understandings, and certainly none which involve India. Um. Just to press the point on the quad, for instance, do you think this kind of the geopolitical jigsaw that we're living in at this particular point in time emboldens India to do more with the quad? Or is there a sense of 
you know, trying to usher in a period of some amount of, say, strategic patience in trying to see how the geopolitical landscape settles before we take a stronger vision? Or do you think the Quad in itself... So essentially, I guess the question is, do we move from Quad 2.0 to, to 3.0? Or do we just kind of continue with the security structures that have been created, the Malabar exercises, which of course is separate to the Quad, but it involves all the Quad countries. And I think that's an important point to make. But there's a lot happening in the Quad with regards to economics, infrastructure, vaccines. There's a vision for some kind of a marketplace within the Quad. So how do you see the future of the Quad in the existing space that you're in? That's a difficult question to answer, Rudy. But uh, uh, as, of, as of now, what I can say is I don't see any statement uh, um, by any Indian official that suggests that Quad is moving towards some sort of a hard security alliance or a hard security grouping. Uh, uh, as far as India is concerned, Quad is a group of like-minded countries who have acted both during the tsunami in 2004 and subsequently uh, in, a, in a concerted way, uh, or, uh, whether it is humanitarian assistance or disaster relief or most recently on the pandemic. Uh, now, uh, to immediately jump from here to, the, to, to alleging, as the Chinese have done, that therefore these four countries are going to form the nucleus of a NATO-like arrangement in the Indo-Pacific uh, is not only to turn a blind eye to the fact that no such arrangement or intent exists, but also the fact that India has a qualitatively different relationship with the other three Quad members. The other three between them have security alliances. India has no bilateral or plurilateral security alliance with any of them. Uh, therefore, we need to be clear if we are going forward uh, that our participation in Quad is based upon our interests. Uh, and uh, we should not allow the Chinese to hijack the agenda by suggesting that our participation in this, in this quadrilateral arrangement immediately and automatically implies that we have, quote unquote, ganged up against them. Now, this is going to be difficult to convince uh, in the region uh, because the region is already, already rattled by Sino-US uh, competition. And the situation in the Ukraine is likely to aggravate that concern among the countries of the region. But I think uh, uh, it will be the proof of Indian diplomacy uh, to, uh, if we can convince them that India's motivations uh, are uh, genuine and that uh, the uh, allegations that the Chinese side is making, at least so far as India is concerned, has no basis. And I am quite confident that um, our diplomacy will be able to achieve this. So if I could turn to another world partner, the United States. Recently, President Biden referred to India's diplomatic positions as shaky. Um, he made what seems to be an off-the-cuff remark in Europe very recently, where he seemed to suggest that regime change is what the United States was aiming for, although the White House was very quick to correct that and said is that it is Putin's exercise of power that Biden was referring to and not regime change as such. Could I get your views on how you see the US-India relationship um, in the larger kind of, uh, in the larger format playing out at this present time, especially with regards to uh, the crisis in Ukraine? <laughs> 
So let me begin with the point you made about uh, the American president's comments about uh, India's actions so far as the Ukraine issue is concerned. Obviously, I can't speak to why the president of the United States said so. But uh, let's look at our position on Ukraine, because to my opinion, our position is very consistent with the foreign policy principles that we have always followed, which is number one, we have expressed concern at the worsening situation and called for the immediate cessation of hostilities. Two, we have made it very clear that the path of dialogue, or at least the return to the path of dialogue, is what is the need of the hour. And finally, we have reiterated respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity, and that means the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine as well. Now, these are principles that have been at the core of Indian foreign policy from 1947 onwards. Uh, and they are in, in line with our national interests. They are in line with international law. They are in line with the United Nations Charter. Therefore, I don't believe India owes an explanation to anybody about whether its position on Ukraine uh, is uh, viable, sustainable, morally correct or not. I think India has correctly acted in its own interests. Uh, and uh, I do refer you to a brief clip I saw of the German Chancellor's statement yesterday, uh, where he said it is very easy for other countries to say that Germany must cut off all oil imports from, um, from Russia. But of course, the German government is responsible for its own people. Uh, well, that applies to the government of India as well. Uh, and therefore, I think that uh, we need to be clear with the American side that where national interest is involved, India must act according to those interests. Now, notwithstanding that, there has been a very clear trend from the year 2000 when President Clinton visited India, uh, which uh, establishes the point that the strategic partnership between India and the United States is something which both sides want to deepen, which both sides want to grow, and which both sides feel is good because it is in the mutual interest. It has mutual benefit. And if you see the progression in the relationship from Prime Minister Vajpayee through Prime Minister Manmohan Singh to, to Prime Minister Modi, you will see that evolution in the relationship. We have to see the trajectory, the trend. This is a consistently northward trend, an upward trend. If we start looking at episodes and seeing that one episode or another is not necessarily what is useful for one side or another, we are missing the wood for the trees. Uh, excuse me, the, the, the trees for the wood or the trees for the forest because trends are important. And if you look at the 20-year trend, you see it unidirectional in every way, uh, diplomatically, politically, even militarily, certainly culturally and economically. And I think that's what the two governments should focus on. I have no doubt in my mind, Rudy, that uh, this relationship will become even more important for both sides in this decade. Uh, and if we do focus on the Indo-Pacific, and I'd love to discuss with you as to uh, whether uh, the United States will still remain focused on the Indo-Pacific. But if it does, I think that the value of this relationship will become evident to both sides even more than we already know or we already see. It sets us up nicely for the next question, uh, Mr. Gokhale, which is that you know, the focus till the early part of February 2022 
was very much on the Indo-Pacific. For European countries like the Netherlands, France, Germany, the European Union as a whole that had an Indo-Pacific strategy, and the United States, of course. Um, but clearly, with the actions in Europe, the need to strengthen NATO, I think rather than intentions, it seems that it might just be a question of capabilities. Will even a large country like the United States and various European nations have the capabilities to split their forces between stability in Europe and security in the Indo-Pacific? And where does that leave us? Yeah, Rudy, let me begin with intentions. Now, uh, we have to note the Chinese readout of the uh, conversation between Presidents Xi and Biden, uh, particularly the readout which talked of the four no's and the one no intention. Uh, according to the Chinese readout, what President Biden said was there will be no war, no Cold War, no uh, regime change, no alliances targeted at China, and no support to Taiwan independence. And the no in one no intention was no intention to see conflict with China. Now, the point I'm making is, at least to the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen a denial by the White House. So whether this was said as explicitly as the Chinese brought out in their press statement or not, that is debatable. But I think what may not be debatable is that in some form or way, these messages were conveyed. Uh, and that suggests to me that at least, again, tactically, the United States may be lowering tensions with China uh, while they deal with a much bigger crisis uh, in Europe uh, uh, for the transatlantic alliance. Now, uh, that's as far as intentions are concerned. Uh, now, capability-wise, I still believe, and this is a, a belief that I, uh, I, I sort of concluded reading uh, a number of American uh, views as well as reports um, that the United States sees China as its principal strategic rival. I do not believe that the crisis in the Ukraine has changed that fundamental perception. And therefore, my sense is that although there may be some bumps along the way, there may be some tactical uh, adjustment of relations with China, the larger strategic direction has been set and that is unlikely to change. Uh, therefore, the question is not whether the United States can deploy capabilities to the region, but when those capabilities are deployed, will there be a break in that before they are resumed? Uh, and this question is crucial because by all accounts, this decade is going to be the deciding decade on who will dominate the Indo-Pacific, whether it will be an American-led order or a Chinese-led order, uh, uh, and what the balance between the two will be. So I think that the longer it takes to commit resources to the Indo-Pacific, the more difficult it becomes subsequently for the United States to deal with China. And now in this context, of course, India is in a somewhat piquant uh, situation at the moment, uh, because we cannot but watch the developments between the United States and China closely. Uh, on the other hand, I think we have a certain advantage now. Uh, we not only have good relations with the West, we have a fairly decent relationship with Russia. And with the Chinese foreign minister coming to India, uh, we have, in a sense, broken the political logjam as well. Uh, therefore, I don't think we should find uh, we should consider ourselves in any way in a disadvantageous situation. 
um, I think uh, it's 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 a wait and watch game. What do the United States, Russia, and China do with each other over the course of the next six or eight months? By which time, hopefully, the Ukraine issue might be moving towards a resolution, uh, and uh, then we take a view on on what steps to take after that. India seems to be in an enviable spot in a sense, but. I mean, equally that uh, you know that that could raise expectations. I mean, it's possibly one of the only countries in the world that can host Foreign Minister Wang Yi, Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov, have a line into the with the United States, a very strong and developing line that you that you very clearly say is only moving northwards, be part of the quad. But I was just if I could just come back to this question of what commentators call the new G2 between China and the United States. And I think a lot of this was following the 14 March meeting that took place in Rome between Yang Jiechi and Jake Sullivan. And you make the point that at the tactical level, there is a different set of parameters that the United States will need to consider with regards to capabilities. Um, and perhaps there's a slightly slight lowering of tensions on the China China end, given what's happening in Central Europe. But of course, at the strategic level, it's one of competition. But if the G2 does develop, if the if there is a genuine movement between managing cooperation, which perhaps we could say is the period up till about 2016, 2017, to managing conflict, how do you think that will impact us? I mean, does it make sense then for us to actually be more bullish on our own managing cooperation dynamic with China? Well, there have been instances in the recent past where, if I may use the phrase, uh, the United States and China have G2. And the one that obviously comes to mind is the deal that Obama and she did on climate change, for instance. So on an issue-by-issue basis, I don't rule out the possibility that there will be uh, uh, an effort at reaching an agreement between these two countries. And given the sheer size of their economies, um, uh, between them, the two of them probably have 40% of the world's GDP or 35% of the world's GDP, uh, the rest of us might have to swallow uh, whatever they agree to. But uh, that is quite a distance away from suggesting that what we are going to uh, move towards in 2030 or 2035, is a bipolar world in which the two poles will act consistently in in tandem. Uh, History tells us, uh, in the first place, that uh, this is something which which has not happened historically. Uh, Wherever there have been two dominant players, uh, they have tended to have differences rather than to come together, uh, uh, rather than common points which allow them to coalesce. But the other point is, although these are two large economies, there are several mid-sized economies which are not necessarily going to play that game. Uh, You already see the way the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates are behaving with the United States in this situation. Uh, uh, Equally, there are others who currently may be dependent on China who can also leverage the situation uh, uh, to, to defy the Chinese. Uh, and therefore, I think there's a lot more space available for mid-level uh, or mid-ranking powers with a GDP of, say, in the range of about 3 billion to 10 billion uh, to play the, that balancing role. Now, how well we all play it is a big question. But I think for India, the crux is the economy, the economy, and the economy again. 
uh, if in the next five to 10 years, we can grow that economy at seven to 8% per annum. Uh, and I know that currently this may not be looking possible, but uh, I don't think that we should go on looks alone. Uh, but if we can, I think we will be in a pretty good position by the end of the decade uh, to find our way even through a potential G2. Uh, although I do want to say that in my own assessment, I don't think a G2 at a broad strategic or global level is likely, not between China and the United States. Mr. Mr. Gokhale, we have almost, uh, time is almost up, but I do want to come back to the Lavrov visit and a question on Russia-China. The conventional analysis, of course, is that the Ukraine crisis has deepened the Sino-Russian relationship in an asymmetric kind of way. The argument, of course, as our colleague and friend Evan Feigenbaum says, that China's carrying now a lot of freight for Russia. So I was just wondering, from your perspective, how does that impact India in the long run? If, the, if Russia indeed is a lot more dependent on China, so if we take that hypothesis as a given, um, what impact will that have, say, in the future, when, we, when there is a skirmish in some part of the LSE or some kind of an escalation, for instance, can we rely on Russia the way we did in years prior to the Ukraine crisis? So even prior to the Ukraine crisis, it was an asymmetric relationship. And it has been an asymmetric relationship for some time now, where China has been the bigger partner. But I question the whole view that the Ukraine crisis will make Russia more dependent on China. This is not unidirectional. My view is if there is a mutual dependency and that mutual dependency will grow as a result of the Ukraine crisis. Remember, China's core foreign policy goal, if there is one goal that we can say defines Chinese foreign policy, it is to ensure that the United States and the Soviet Union and its successor state do not come together against China. This has been its fundamental and core principle since 1949. And for a while, uh, the Chinese were on shaky ground because when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 uh, and uh, Yeltsin brought in democracy into Russia, the Chinese uh, uh, nightmare was that a democratic Russia would be aligned with the West. If you read the speeches of Deng Xiaoping at that time, you will realize how hard the Chinese worked to rebuild relations with the Russian Federation. And today, their best bet is President Putin. Any other government in Russia in a post-Putin situation, if ever there is one, will be more accommodative of the West and not in China's interest. To me, that means China's dependency on Putin and Russia increases. And that is a leverage for the Russians, although I do admit that the relationship will continue to be asymmetric. Now, where, is, where we are concerned, I think we have to acknowledge that uh, we are not going to get the support from Russia that we got, say, in the 1961 Bangladesh crisis. Uh, we saw uh, the, the, the relative uh, sort of uh, uh, inactivity on the Russian part during the LAC problem in 2020. But we should not forget that Russia and India have no fundamental conflict of interest. And we should also recall that if Russia needs China, Russia also needs India today in the Ukrainian context. Therefore, here too, it is not a one-way relationship. Yes, we are dependent on them for some of our arms supplies, 
We are perhaps dependent on them for energy supplies. They have been a good friend to us in the UN Security Council, but this is not a one-way relationship. So I don't think we should see ourselves in any way as being constrained by recent developments. Mr. Kokle, thank you so much for spending the time with us on interpreting India. We really uh, appreciate your insights as ever. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. We'll be back soon with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.